this is different, isn't it? That ramp is exactly one half inch wider than my wheel, so I whispered to Carol a minute ago, it probably wouldn't do for me to wipe out on my way up, right? But I would get your attention. Um, thanks to everybody who's led this morning. Um, it's Leanne and I commented when we first came here just how neat it is to see the talent in this church, the kids that play and the kids that sing. Storm, you did a good job, buddy. And last week we heard Sunny, and she did a great job. And it's just, it's just amazing to watch God lift up people that come up here and, uh, and are part of our worship and lead. Like, we've got a new couple that's here, um, Brian and Ashley. Did I get the names right? Good. Um, and it's just, it's just really neat to see. Um, got a text from Gary this morning. He said to greet everybody. They're having a great time in Florida. Um, sounds like the opera on Friday that Denea was in went well. Um, let's have a word of prayer. Father God, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would just teach us from your word, Lord, that you would press upon your, impress upon our hearts um, your desire for our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, I don't have Gary's gift for like how he wordsmiths things and he puts things really cool together. If you were here last week... Um, one of the phrases that he put together was persistent resistance. And Gary and I didn't put together these messages. We didn't talk about this ahead of time. Um, this is just one of those God things of I was led to, to a certain scripture here and I couldn't help but last week when I was sitting there and hearing him talk about persistent resistance, I thought, wow, that's pretty cool because... Um, I'm going to start off with um, Saul's encounter on the road to Damascus. And if you know the story, there was nobody more resistant and no more, no more persistent in his resistance than, than Saul was. I mean, he, he went after everybody he could find. Um, so with that, I'd like to read Acts 9, starting in chapter 1. Um, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but not, did, did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind. He did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him and restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man. And all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. 
But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, and he was baptized. Saul was so entrenched in his position, he was determined to hunt down every follower of the way, as early Christians were known. Saul was, Saul's conviction came from his upbringing and everything he knew about himself. If we look at Philippians 3, um, in Philippians 3, he describes himself. He said, I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's where he saw himself um, and how he conducted himself before this encounter with Jesus. Jesus knew what it would take to, to change Saul. He had to get his attention, and he did it in a very dramatic way. Why does it take something dramatic to get our attention? We're just built that way. I know many of you, but you don't really know me. I didn't grow up here. So if you'll permit me, I'm going to give you a little of my background. Um, I want to make it clear I'm not comparing myself to Paul in any way, shape, or form. Um, I was just like the kids that ran out to children's church. I was raised in a church, um, went to Sunday school. At my age at this point, I literally don't remember a time that I didn't believe. For me, believing is about like breathing. Um, one of the things that played very heavily into my, my faith walk as I grew was um, a place up in upstate New York in the Adirondacks. It's a Christian family retreat that my family's gone to as long as I can remember. It's called Camp of the Woods. And um, I first went there when I was about eight weeks old. And um, my mom went there for the first time in 1939. Mom just had her 93rd birthday this last Tuesday, and we've already got our reservations, so we're, if everybody's healthy and everything is fine, we're actually planning on going again this summer. A lot of you have kids that have gone to Cooperstown, and if you don't have kids that have gone, you know kids that have gone, and you know how dramatic that impact is in that week that they're there. It's a tremendous time of growth for the kids. Um, that's what it was like for me each summer as I would go up there. Um, if you know um, Dustin Dahl, he worked at Cooperstown last summer. And his summer that he spent at Cooperstown was like the kids' weekly experience times 100. It was just, I mean, if you know Dusty and you've talked to him at all, you know what the impact was for him last summer. It was just tremendous, tremendous time of growth for him in his walk with God. Um, in high school... My, after my sophomore and junior summers, I worked at Camp of the Woods on staff up there. And the format for Camp of the Woods is Sunday morning and Sunday evening you have church and you have chapel every day of the week during the weekdays. And on Saturday is the turnover day. And they get just 
tremendous speakers, some of the nationally known speakers, guys like um, Joe Stoll, who was the president of of Moody Bible Institute, and Ravi Zachariah, and Alistair Begg, some just tremendous names that you hear on the radio, and they bring just powerful messages. Um, And that was, I mean, that was as big an impact on me as Cooperstown was on Dusty last year. Um, then, Then, you know, as life does, life got busy, and sports kind of took over. And pretty much in the following years, um, Sundays saw me usually either on a field playing or refereeing. Um, And that's about where I was up through about age 25. I had just gotten hired for a corporate job. I was on weekends when I wasn't playing sports and doing stuff. I was running to Richmond, by the way, if you don't know it, we used to live just outside of Washington, D.C., and Richmond's about 100 miles south of Washington. It's about like running from here to Fargo, as Jenny knows. Um, and I'd run down there, and I was running sound for a, for a rock band. Um, I didn't have a crisis of faith. I never, I never stepped away from God. I just wasn't living for God. I wasn't spending time in the Word. I wasn't regularly attending church. I was just kind of putting it on autopilot. Um, if any of you got to see Matt's message from the, the power team, you know, he talked about ice balls and fireballs, and in the middle was the lukewarm kind of spitballs, as he called them. I was pretty much there at that point in time. Um, when I had got done with my couple of summers at working at Camp of the Woods, I really felt like I was a fireball at that point, but I had just kind of, like I said, put it on autopilot. Because I was running to Richmond and running sound for a rock band, that's what brought me to Richmond for New Year's weekend, um, 1979. And um, I was visiting some guys. It was early in the evening. It was actually 6.37 p.m., that's one of those times it gets indelibly imprinted on your mind. And, you know, like at, at New Year's, that time of year, the days are so short, it's absolutely dark by 6.30 at night. And uh, I was going to change clothes so that we could go out to supper. And the guys that I was staying with uh, went up and knocked on the door. I was with my best friend, J.R. And uh, John and I went up and we knocked on the door and there was no answer, so... John said, you know, well, why don't we climb out on the roof and we'll just climb in the bedroom window. Didn't really think anything about danger because uh, the way that that apartment building was set, it was a group of apartment buildings and there was an alleyway on the back side. And I knew that in the, on the street side, the buildings are one floor higher than they are on the, the alley side. And these guys used to use the flat metal roof there like as their balcony, basically. They'd put their lounge chairs out there um, in the summer and didn't think anything of it when J.R. said, let's go out on the roof, you know. So we went out there and, and John tried to open the window and the window wouldn't go up. So I said, well, let me try the other window. Well, what I didn't know and didn't realize at the time was every so often on the alley side, the alleyway came up to the, the higher section and because it was dark and there was no light source back there, I walked off the roof. Literally. And um, as soon as I realized I was falling, if, if you've ever, if your house has stairs and if you've ever gone downstairs in the dark, 
completely. And there's one more stair than you realize there is. You know, like it jolts you because you're down before you even realize you're falling. So when I, it took me like probably a couple of feet to even realize I was falling. And as soon as I realized I was falling, I, I tried to, to tuck and roll. Um, it probably sounds strange, but I was actually kind of used to falling. Um, I used to I used to dive competitively, and when I quit diving competitively, I kind of went into rock quarries, um, bridges, waterfalls, and then I took up skydiving. So I was kind of an adrenaline junkie. So as soon as I realized I was falling, I, I tucked and I rolled and I tried to get my feet over. Um, I screamed John three times on the way to the ground, and I landed on my back on cement and exploded half my spine. So if you've ever wondered what got me in a wheelchair, that's what got me in a wheelchair. Um, strangely, I never lost consciousness, and the doctors could not believe I could land on my back on cement and not lose consciousness. Um, I had played At that point, I'd played soccer for about 15 years, and my neck was just literally so strong, I just didn't let my head hit. Um, so there I was, lying New Year's Eve, lying in a back alley in Richmond, Virginia, this is about two blocks off of the campus of Virginia Commonwealth University. You're in the middle of a big city. It's loud. There's always somebody beeping a horn or there's you know college kids around making noise. Um, as John got down to me, he was literally sobbing uncontrollably. And then he did probably, I'm guessing, the hardest thing he ever had to do in his life. He left me. Because he. this is pre-cell phone. This is actually pre 911 that he, le- he left me there to go call an ambulance, not knowing when he came back if I'd even still be alive. Um, on my way back from Colorado, I actually stopped in Lincoln and visited with him, and I never realized this part. We very seldom actually talk about that night, but for some reason, this last month when we were talking and visiting, we talked about that a little bit, and um, I know that nobody under the age of about at least 25, maybe 30, is going to know what I mean when I say phone booth, okay? I realize that. It's a foreign concept. Um, but back then, that's what it was. And if you were in a big city, the, the phone book was probably about twice as wide as my Bible. And they usually, like, hung down. So you flipped them up and then looked inside. And John told me that when he flipped it up, his brain completely froze, and he literally could not remember how to spell ambulance. So like I said, this was before 911. So while he was doing that, I'm lying in a back alley in Richmond all alone and had a long talk with God. And it's really strange. I, ne- I didn't, It's one of those things that you don't realize at the time. You realize it later when you're looking back at it, that in the middle of this city with all the, the noise that must have been going on around me, all I heard was God. It was just completely and totally silent. Um, I'll admit I did try bargaining. He was not going to back time up for me three minutes. Um, That wasn't going to happen. But anybody that's ever tried, thought like that, you know, to conceptualize what they would do if they were faced potentially with their imminent death, one thing I learned, don't try to ever guess what you're going to do in those situations. Honestly, it was probably the most peaceful moment of my life. Um, like I said, I've, I've, I've known Christ since I was a little kid. So I know scripture tells us 
He knows the number of our days. By extension, that means he also knows when we're not being called home. So he knew he had me, you know. Well, finally the ambulance arrived and um, off to the hospital. If you're going to mess up this bad, you want to do it in a place that has a lot of crime because they have an awesome shock trauma center. If you've ever been to the emergency room, you know, like when you come in, they put you in a little room, not in a shock trauma center. That's like a 20-foot by 30-foot room with one table in the middle, and everybody in that room is concentrated on you. There were times I can remember, like, because I was kind of going in and out at this point because I was on drugs by then. I wasn't on drugs when I fell. I was on drugs by then, and they started me on painkillers. Um... But I can remember looking up and there, at times there were like as many as like a dozen or more people like all around me, all doing stuff. And uh, it was just, you know, they, they had me. It was amazing. I spent the next three weeks in a thing called a striker frame. Um, they did surgery to try and put Humpty Dumpty back together again, but they got to keep you absolutely straight. So a striker frame is a tubular frame that there's two sides to it. And... Each side can be unbolted. And every two hours, 24 hours a day, they bolt this side on and they flip you over like a sandwich. Then they take this away. And then two hours later, doesn't matter if it's two in the morning, they bolt this on. Oops, I shouldn't have hit that, should I, Jeff? (laughs) They flip that over. And they just, you know, the really bad thing is about three in the morning or so like that when they flip you over and the nurses are trying to be really nice and not like get you cold and so they don't take your blankets away and then the blankets get caught in the mechanism and they, like, they get you this far and they're stuck. It's really good. Also, if you've ever been in a hospital, you know that one thing you have more than anything else is time. Yeah, there's visitors that come and that's awesome, but there's many, many, many hours that you just are there alone. And during all that time, I kept a journal. I actually went back and and some of the things I told you about that happened that night, I went back and actually, while it was fresh in my mind, filled in a lot of details so that I would always remember like the thoughts and things that went on. And I've just kind of given you a, a real brief overview of, of what happened that night. Um, but I had a lot of time. And like I said, I'm not equating myself to Paul in any way, but boy, God got my attention. And again, the question still remains, why does it take so much to get our attention? Um, It's human nature. When things are going well, we put things on autopilot. When things are going really well, we actually don't just put on autopilot. We actually take credit for it, right? We're like, I am so awesome. So another example I want to give you, if we go back to Daniel, if you remember the story of Daniel, the king, King Nebuchadnezzar had these dreams and none of, none of the people in his court could interpret these dreams. And Daniel came to the king and he interpreted the dream for him. So I want to pick this up in verse 29 of Daniel 4. And this is when the dreams are coming to, to, you know, to fruition. As the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great city of Babylon I have made for my royal residence by my mighty power? And for the glory of my majesty, well, you know he's in trouble right there, right? Even as those words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. 
This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Each of those things, whether it's my experience, Paul's experience, or what happened with King Nebuchadnezzar, is God getting our attention. But what happens after God gets our attention? That's what I really want to focus on. Once we start living for him, once we finally realize that the one that created us knows what's best for us, and that's what he wants for us. He knew us even before we were born. He knows our makeup, and he knows our potential, and that's what he wants us to live to. Look at the good things that came from Saul after he became Paul. Over half the books of the New Testament, so much that we rely on for our Christian learning and for understanding what God wants us to do in our walk, so much of it comes from his inspired hand. Look at the joy that Paul experienced when he, when he started living for God. If you go back to Philippians that I read earlier, the part about him being a Hebrew of Hebrews and his whole lineage and how proud he was of that, the, the sentence that follows that, says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And returning to Daniel, where we left off, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and my nobles sought me out. And I was restored to my throne and became greater than ever before. And I like this part. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. I think it's fair to say that Nebuchadnezzar's worldview changed dramatically. You could ask, what about me? I'm slower. <laughs> yes, my, my behavior and my world changed, but it took a lot longer. Do I have it all figured out? <laughs> Not hardly. Um, I'm still, as a pastor we used to have back in Virginia, I'm still what's called a work in progress. Um, in my teens, I thought it was all about like an endless list of do's and don'ts. Um, much like the, the, what is it, 384 or something rules that the Pharisees had. I thought it was all about fulfilling rules. Faith is not about rules. Faith is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, a month ago, I was out in Colorado, and I did something I've never done before. Um, 
I actually officiated at a, at a wedding. Um, I don't know if you remember my, my nephew, Jeff, and his, at that time, fiance, Marissa. They were here last June. Um, during praise time, Josh was on drums, and Jeff played guitar. And then during special music, um, Jeff did, a, did the special music. I'd like to read you something that I'm sure in, um, I met, it might sound kind of strange, but this was, this was the end of my comments um, as I did in the wedding when I did their ceremony. I said to them, with all the preparation and planning, I'm sure that in many ways today feels like you've reached a destination. But with all that preparation and planning, it has actually brought you to the starting line. The story of your marriage today is a journal with each page blank. Every day you get the chance to write out your story, your testimony. I've said things like this occasionally to some of the kids in my Sunday school class. Making the decision to accept the gift of salvation, accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, it isn't the finish line. It's actually just the start. It's the start of your relationship. When you get married, you don't think about your wife like, great, we're married, I'm good, now we don't have to talk anymore. And all you guys that are married know that if she's not talking to you, you probably better find out why. Um, If we have a relationship with Jesus, he wants us to talk to him. Prayer is nothing more than that. It's how our relationship grows. It's not just random that I read you something from a wedding. If you look at Revelation 19.7, it says, we, the um, it says, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. We are the bride. The church is the bride. From Ephesians 5.22, we read, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. From the day each of us makes that decision to follow Jesus Christ, just as I said to Jeff and Marissa about their wedding, every day you get the chance to write out your story of faith. Your testimony. Let's pray. Father God, we, just, we thank you so much for your word that we can learn from and that you can impress upon our hearts. We pray that we carry it in our hearts every day. And just, Lord, I pray that something that I've said just resonates and, and just means something to each person here that would encourage them to reach out to you, Lord, and would encourage them to continue that conversation would continue to improve their prayer life, just to constantly walk with you and to realize that it's an ongoing thing and not just a momentary thing. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.